Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. Okay, so the energy might be low, but we're going to try to do an episode of Zoomcron. Tim Adams is on the other side of this table. Here I am. And I am Travis Mateer. Travis William Skink Mateer. I like lots of names. I had a pseudonym back in the day, writing for the 4 and 20 blog. Um, last week's episode that we recorded was about the information war. So we had Roy McKenzie here from Missoula County Tyranny. It was a pleasure to have him here. Although you and I talk so much, Tim, so much, that he maybe didn't get as many comments in sideways. But it was a two-hour conversation. And this week, we are going to be talking about sort of a broader topic again. I kind of like this idea of having a topic. Um, and so I would love to talk about crime and sort of how it relates to drugs. So not necessarily the drug war specifically, but, you know, maybe broader crime and war. I'll figure out how to frame it in the title of the, of the podcast. But I pulled out some books, one of the books you got me. So San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger. Yep, and this Actually, is, came out like a month ago. It's definitely hot, and I am talking about it quite a lot. Um, so uh, four books I pulled from my library, and then one fake book, and I'll explain that in a second. But San Francisco, that's that's one. And then I'll, I'll give this to you. This is Alfred McCoy, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. That is a seminal work by a amazing writer. That's one of those books that I find on Abe because I like to get the, the older copies. Um, Isn't it crazy how many books there are? I'm, I, yeah. This has been, well, just books, but uh, you can't see from the podcast, but this is kind of yellowish book. It was probably published in the 60s, if I had to guess. I love it. Yeah, 72, uh, 73, 74, something like that. I mean, the reason I say I love this is because I've done a lot of research uh, for my history minor. I had to finish a, a paper on McCarthy. And, and for that, you had to actually go to original sources. So I actually Ooh. went to the original New York Times coverage of the McCarthy hearings and uh, some of the books that were written uh, shortly about the time it was actually going on. Uh, and, and a lot of stuff you don't find out when you read later books or contemporary books. There usually another person has written about the subject and decided which parts they think are important for their book. Um, and a lot of the details end up getting lost. So yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And um, it's it's interesting because I actually got a an original copy of oh the the family by Ed Sanders about the Manson murders, um, and the original version had something about the process church of the final judgment that was later removed, um, and that's actually kind of timely to mention because. Um, Part of the the sort of local drug scene that uh, that I I look at that I've investigated that I used to sort of um, look at from the inside in terms of working at the Pavarello Center and more directly with elements of the criminal justice system, um, you know, a lot of that is uh, well a lot different now. And I was going to make a point about that, but um, oh yeah, removing a post. So um, I put up a garbage post today. And um, it was a garbage post. And, and one of the reasons why it was a garbage post is because I unfortunately made an assumption that the first woman I ran across on the jail roster 
that was charged with felony drug possession and criminal and endangerment of children was potentially the suspect brought in um, for something that happened Thursday night into Friday morning. Um, two children were found unresponsive and pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, the sheriff's department released a statement, but not a lot of information is is out there. So I jumped the gun like a fucking idiot um, because that's I'm, I do that sometimes as a uh, citizen journalist of one. And and then I actually found another person that was charged with deliberate homicide. But again, I don't know. Not a lot of information is being made available. So um, so that was something that I removed. But um, before we get into maybe some of the, of the other topics, some of the recent writing I've also been doing um, is one of the reasons why I'm just, I have some interest in some questions. Uh, Taylor Simonson was the man that went missing October 12th, I believe. He was found dead. He was found dead near his truck. This was in the Blue Mountain area of this Missoula. Yeah, October 12th is when he went missing. Um, he, I mean that he was found. I thought last week he was still missing. So this is the timing of it, right? I, I, I mentioned in a blog post that I had heard um, word of mouth, you know, sort of friend of a friend. So I couldn't confirm it, you know, um, but I had heard that he had been found dead. And then about three or four hours after I posted that, like the sheriff's department, which is also the coroner, um, did announce that he was found dead. No more information has been found um, about that uh, or has been released regarding that that case. Um there is also still, you know, the, the situation with Johnny Lee Perry having been shot um, in a kind of similar part of the county. You know, Johnny Lee Perry is someone that I'm familiar with, um, and he had a machete, allegedly. Sheriff deputies couldn't de-escalate the situation. He was shot and killed. No information um, about the, in terms of the deputies involved, has been released. Ravalli County, I believe, is doing the investigation. Um, and that was August 29th. And so we're here. It's November 22nd. Um, Shoot a president in the head day. Ah, that's JFK joke. The energy is yeah. low, and I probably shouldn't try and make jokes. Can we? Can we maybe make a note that today just I'll, I'll stop making any effort to lighten the mood? Well, there's a lot of things at play here, and I think maybe we should sort of examine it because it's never anyone's intention to put bad information out, unless you're a Democrat uh, journalist who just wants to put anything out bad about Republicans. But generally, if you're subscribing to journalistic principles, you know, you don't want to put something that's not untrue. Um, but I think we should also examine the barriers that exist to finding the truth. I right. mean, do, like, I think your criticism of Missoula County Sheriff's Office and their uh, withholding of information except at their leisure is completely valued. And I think at the other time, I mean, how many times are you supposed to call up the Missoula County Sheriff's Office and ask the same question and get the answer, we're not going to tell you? So, well, in, in my reporting on the... Uh, prop and... Go ahead. Should that be the end of it? Right. I mean, if that's basically what the Missoulian does, is calls, gets a statement, okay, that's good, and prints it. Yeah. And then we never hear about it again. You are a person I know to follow things almost to the to the end. You will follow the, the trail of crumbs right to the frigging witch's house. And I think that's <laughs> what you're trying to do here. Well, and, is, and is not just yeah. take what you're given at face value the non-information that we all pay for with our tax dollars to try to actually find out the truth. So, And being upfront about the baggage and the biases, which I think you know most people do carry in terms of uh, how they form opinions and ideas um, from their direct experiences. Um, in, a, in a recent post, I looked at the structural power of the coroner office in, in the sheriff deputy, or the, I'm sorry, the sheriff's department also being the coroner. Um, that is not the case in every county. And I actually found uh, February 2020, as reported by um, Electric City, uh, it's a Great Falls blog, 
that um, the sheriff in Cascade County, so north of Missoula, requested the separation of the coroner from the sheriff's department. Um, and the quote was, there was an inherent conflict of interest. So when you, when you talk about structural power, um, I, I listen to podcasts all the time that are looking at some of the, the, the local politics now because school boards are becoming more um, hot-button uh, topics of where these culture wars are playing out. And, and more and more people are starting to realize that the sheriff's department is a significant seat of power for counties and for your local jurisdictions. And so um, it, is, it is something to absolutely be aware of. Um, especially as, you know, families like Rebecca Barsati's family is told, hey, we've done enough looking for your missing daughter. She went missing July 20th. And you might have questions about how we did that, having looked only in the water and having allegedly spent 30% of the search and rescue budget. Um, but we're done. Go go by. Go back to Virginia. Um, and so, I mean, there, there are these other stories and narratives out there that are feeding into, I think, what I am looking at. But when I put out garbage, you know, hey say it's garbage yeah you know there's something that i've noticed living in montana for my whole life and that is people seem to think that because we live in sort of a center-right state that we have the sort of privilege of having like republican government i actually think it's tremendously worse because it's such a small population but a large geography that it takes a lot to actually inform quote unquote the whole state of montana and I think this has really helped Democrats in a lot of ways because they can invest a much smaller amount of resources here that go much, much farther. Uh, Ooh, let's talk about resources and a church in Clinton and Republicans. Oh, yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into Miss Manzella and her nails. Let's get oh, into it. Should so I do this whole segment really flaming gay? <laughs> that way she won't listen to it. You you should. Um, and, and first of all... Um, <laughs> I'm not going to try to make sure. jokes and make light of things, but um, I do have a song that I've recorded that I, I do want to at some point make uh, a funny like video of my song in which I, I have a crisis of conscience because I gave Pastor Brandon Huber $100 in cash. So I did do that um, at Clinton on Wednesday evening because I went out there. I didn't realize it was part of this like... Brandon Huber? Is that the pastor? Yeah, Brandon Brandon Huber is the pastor that's okay. part of this like controversy that we're about to get into, okay? And so um, I went out there in person, and I, I will describe briefly the, the situation, um, and then you can jump in on the Manzella, sure. you know, and, and JD, Pastor JD, and it was Dr. Al was out there. So um, what the story is, according to Pastor Brandon, who from the pulpit explained the situation, okay, was that um, the Missoula Food Bank, um, is part of the the church's like lunch program. So they, the food bank, I believe, provides lunches. Um, the church probably does some volunteering around that, whether it's filling lunches or, you know, distributing lunches. And so in lunches that somehow went out to the community through the church, there were LGBT inserts. I didn't see these inserts. It's like coloring book pages or something. And uh, there were people that were upset about it. So Pastor Brandon, from what he said, called the food bank to, to see if this was something just put in by a volunteer or, or the, the nonprofit was aware of this. And so he was told that, you know, the food bank was aware that, and they put that in there intentionally. And so he um, explained that they were, that people weren't happy and he was going to essentially pull out of the program. From my understanding, and according to Pastor Brandon, you know, he wasn't raising his voice or yelling or being disrespectful. Um, he just said that, you know, no, thank you. Our participation's done. So I think he can do that. Um, but apparently now he's also a realtor and the Realtors Association has gotten involved in, in officially censoring him for hate speech. 
in relation to this lunch program incident thing. And it might even now, because I think he decided to bring litigation against the Realtors Association. It's bounced to a potential national, you know, umbrella organization of this local iteration of, of the Realtors Association that has new laws about hate speech. So that was my understanding from listening to Pastor Brandon. To get there, I had to drive past some people that were pretty uh, vocal and being you know, upset that this was even happening, probably because Teresa Manzella was there. I did try to talk to a couple of those protesters. Um, and it's interesting, I said I worked at the pub, and they're like, oh, you're on the right side then. I'm like, well, no, I'm trying to get this community to care about dead black men. Um, you know, and I kind of tried talking to them about nonprofits, maybe not, uh, pushing a political agenda. And this guy was just like, yeah, sorry. I stopped listening to you like 10 minutes ago. So I felt myself getting pissed. And so I turned around and walked away and went back to the church. That was part of my motivation for giving a hundred dollars to pastor Brandon. But, um, after listening to Teresa Manzella and pastor JD, you know, I don't agree with a lot of the things that they were saying in, in the sort of the way that they are trying to battle back. And what I do believe is the information war culture war. Um, but Pastor Brandon, I don't think, has a lot of options when it comes to uh, people that are going to back him, because I think the majority of Missoula, if they even are aware of this, are probably not too concerned about asymmetrical financial attacks on, on a person for pulling out of a program because of political inserts you know, that he has members that don't agree with. So, Yes, uh, and there's so many things that we could unpack in here. Oh, yeah. Um, not the least of which is whether one of the leaders of the Republican Party should be implying that gay people should be afraid to walk around and not hold hands because of the quote-unquote choices they made. Um, I mean, we probably have spent the last month shitting on Skylar Rispins at the Missoulian, but uh, she's really went out, and I think she stuck to her guns because Menzella came out and claimed she was misquoted. Um, I mean, this is sort of hearkening back to the issue with posting the wrong person, Uh there is basic principles that you need to do, and one of them is to cover your ass, because at this point, we know that we have a, a press that's adversarial, but not against government, just against people who have the wrong beliefs. And, you know, in, in some cases, uh, this does fall where maybe this does need to be handled privately. Uh, I, I don't know what the hell the Missoula Organization of Realtors needs a hate speech thing for. I don't know why any realtor in Missoula County needs to have their speech on social media or, or privately monitored. Um, you're right. I think it was something to do with a program through the Missoula Food Bank where they just put like a rainbow on the things that went out in June or something. Right. And it's perfectly within the, the pastor's right to not participate in that program. Um <sighs> I'm I'm really struggling to care about this. I really am. I yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I this mean, is it, one of those things they want you to care about so they can get you interested, so you'll follow it and keep your your eyeballs on the ads. But uh, this is so, just so affects so few people in such a minor and, and narrow way that it's just like I I the, the thing that bothers me most is that you have these Republican politicians and because this isn't the first time I've seen. Uh, do you know who Matt Walsh is? Matt Walsh, to, wasn't that the... Or, uh, he's a commentator who used to, to write for Breitbart. Now I think he writes for Joe Walsh. or someone. No, but he's a really prominent far-right guy. And, and I think we've been coming around. We've been dealing with this transgender issue so much and so much that uh, we, we've kind of come back to be like, well, maybe sh we, should we have been supportive of gay rights? Is this what we led to? I was talking to Stephen the other night, and he's like, you know, I think the same thing. I think this is a direct... 
result of, of how we achieved gay rights because we didn't get it at the ballot box. We got it through judicial fiat. So, you know, no one's going to be convinced. I think, you know, the, most of the time, the only thing that convinces someone about gay rights is actually knowing a gay person, having a gay person in their life, like seeing that most gay people are just kind of dealing with the same people the rest of us are, the same issues. Well, so, so I mean, let, let's circle it back around, yeah. right? While there's a culture war being fought, and I will <clears throat> absolutely acknowledge that, you know, the lack of support for a lifestyle that, that someone um, is born identifying with, you know, um, will lead someone to potentially to not having a, a healthiest self-esteem and identity crisis issues that can lead to drug abuse, right? Um Drug abuse in, in some of the, the issues with alcohol and meth are, are some, one of the underlying issues of, of, in my mind, public safety. So we hear a lot about public safety. You know, how do we keep kids safe? Um, that's been part of the conversation around kids and masks. You know, we want to keep them safe and keep everyone safe and don't transmit the, the viruses, right? Um, you know, we have absolutely problems with uh, kids committing suicide. And so the suicide issue can be connected to mental health issues. Um, not having support if you're, you know, one of the letters, I don't want to say them because I'll miss one and then get... But doesn't a lot of that sort of rely on the narrative that society is not accepting of gay people, therefore we all need to go out of our way to correct what they experienced? Because gay people, I think if you're growing up 15, 16, 17 year old, you're not having the experience I did. I, right. I was in fear a lot. I was beat up. I was locked in a locker. I had my front tooth chipped uh by someone who wanted to fucking check me because i was gay i grew up in gay wyoming when matthew shepherd was was gay in wyoming it's right we, we can't both claim eternal victimhood while also claiming progress do you know what i mean i think yeah, this is sort of the well same said. issue we're dealing with with race right now is somehow we have these people did you see the video of jesse jackson trying to march in uh, no. kenosha oh my god he is basically like a weekend at bernie's corpse and there are all these nice black people who i'm sure are paid very large salaries by the rainbow coalition to protest this and it's when we have so many special interest groups who need to get their message out and a media that is so willing to put the, that message before the message or, or thoughts of regular people, it really warps our perception of, of reality because you have people whose job it is to drum up interest in an issue, whether it be gay rights or racism, to characterize the issue as extreme as possible so that it can get coverage and get people to care about it. And, and, the reality is if you're not actually in these bubbles of working at a gay nonprofit or working at a nonprofit or or maybe in academia or, or government where it's your job to be responsive to the people who, are, who scream the most loud, then you don't understand that regular people are just going about their lives. They're not thinking about this all the time. They're not <clears throat> looking at another person and first seeing what race they are or what they like to do in the bedroom. They just say another human being and then, you know, those things might be a secondary thing. But right. we're basically forced by the media, by everyone to, to take these things that we don't even care that much about or don't affect us that much as front and center just so they can all be satiated. Well, let me, <clears throat> you mentioned Jesse Jackson in Wisconsin. Let's get to Wisconsin, but first um, let's get there through uh, the county attorney's office sure. here in Missoula in Kirsten Pabst. <clears throat> and so um, the, the fake book that I got um, is called To Prosecute. And I had to like special order this from the consulting firm that, that makes it. Because it's not like a book that a publisher puts out there that you would find in Barnes & Noble, for example. I actually had to contact the, one of the communication people. The county has many. I, I contacted one to actually get the consulting firm. and She gave me the PDF that had the, the listing. And so I went through a lot of effort just to get this book. Because Kirsten Paps was in this book talking about her prosecut prosecutorial 
vision, philosophies, and all that. Um, but for a little context, in terms of my own um, bias, you know, Johnny Lee Perry is is a dead black man. Um, he was shot and killed by sheriff deputies. Before that, um, he was alleged to have assaulted Sean Stevenson on January 3rd, 2020, inside the Pavarillo Center. Um, because of this assault, Johnny was initially arrested, and then he was released very quickly. Um, my relationship with Sean's family actually resulted from the fact that I caught the reality that Johnny was back out on the streets while the family back in Texas was still being told um, that Johnny was in jail. And so that discrepancy um, is initially what led them to reach out to me because this you know blogger in Montana um, had more accurate information than apparently what they were being told. And so um, it's, it's interesting as, as we look at decisions to prosecute, decisions to not prosecute, Around the same time that Sean Stevenson was um, assaulted allegedly by Johnny Lee Perry, um, Ben Musso uh, was stabbed four times and died. And so Josh, Josh Pagnow was the, the other person that apparently went into a bathroom. So uh, Josh and Ben went into a bathroom. Um, There's a drug deal, meth for weed was going to be traded. Something happened. Josh sticks Ben four times with a knife. Um, Essentially, both Johnny Lee Perry and and Josh Bagnell were not prosecuted. Um, they were not prosecuted. So uh, Josh ended up being charged with something later. Um, and then Johnny Lee Perry was left on the streets where he apparently was not getting mental health services or any kind of treatment for addiction. Because when I recorded footage of him on August 9th and then uh, put that out on August, I think, 16th, um, you know, clearly he was in a state of mental distress claiming that he could kill at will. Uh, he was the new CIA. Um, he admitted to strangling Sean Stevenson on footage that I recorded and then put out, you know, um, eventually on a, on a Vimeo account. And so, you know, clearly this person was not getting treatment. Um, now let's, let's go to this, this bullshit book called to prosecute interviews about early decision making. And this is edited by Emily LaGarada and it's got a forward by Kevin Kane. So I'm going to um, go to page 159. Can I just tell you something? Oh, yeah. Somewhere in Kirsten Pabst's house or office is a copy of that book. I would bet money on it. These people are academics. They love awards. They love accolades. They love to see their picture and words in this print fake, this in a fake physical book, book. Yeah, this fake book was made so that she could have a little uh, nice intro page here um, with a quote that says, I see my role as a prosecutor as promoting community safety and protecting victims of crime while honoring the constitutional rights of all. Do you have warm, tingly constitutional feelings yet, Tim? And I safety feelings? I don't like this woman. And the, so, I don't like the people that keep her in office. Yeah. Here's the problem, okay? According to this book, um, according to this interview, how would you describe prosecutors' traditional way of approaching early decision-making? Her response, I think prosecutors used to think about early decision-making as just one step along the path towards punishment. Diversion was reserved for when a prosecutor's case fell apart right before trial, and they were trying to get something out of it for the victim or treatment for the defendant. Because it was an afterthought, that form of diversion was really hard to manage because it turned prosecutors into probation officers having to monitor compliance and deal with violations. Inevitably, prosecutors were too busy not best suited for those tasks. So lots of diversion cases fell through the cracks. So part of the assertion is going to be that um, sort of pretrial diversion um, is is a, a way of uh, better using resources. I'm not saying that assertion is inaccurate or wrong, um, but I, I do want to continue reading some, some responses because uh, I think they're pretty interesting. 
Um, let's see. What um, year was that book written? I'd be interested to know if this was pre or let's see. post. Well, I mean, she became county attorney after the rape scandal, right? So it had to have been after 2010. I mean, this is copyright 2020, but... Oh. Um, wow, that's very recent. She, it is very recent. That's during she, COVID, basically. She mentions uh, launching the program um, 2019. Um, so, okay. Let's just, let's just check this out. So she talks about um, where she looked for ideas and resources, and the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys comes up a lot. She's a member of that, and so she's gone to conferences. And when you look at sort of national agendas that might be set, um, this is one of the organizations that she certainly a, has influence. Like board member? Let me look that up. I thought she was in a member uh, leadership position. Yeah, she was. Can you read me the organization? You know, yeah. Something of Prosecuting Attorneys? It's the, the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. And so I'm going to read a little bit about the response. Okay. What were your initial goals for the new early decision-making and diversionary practices? <clears throat> and this is Kristen Papst's response. My vision for this program came in an aha moment at an APA conference. I realized the system needed to better allocate the right amount of resources to the right person at the right time. I knew that if we could target those resources better than the traditional criminal justice system, we could stop wasting precious system resources on the lower risk groups and better address the needs of higher risk groups. Um, ultimately, research shows us that the approach would lower recidivism rates. Okay, and then I'm gonna go to who's eligible for the new response. I initially assumed our target population would be meth-addicted mothers struggling to parent their children. We quickly learned that that demographic would score out as too high-risk, high-needs. Instead, we refine eligibility to look at low-risk first-time offenders on property crimes and mostly nonviolent offenses. Risk is based on the Ohio Risk Assessment System. We have some exceptions, though, like some partner violence cases that are ineligible even if they screen as low-risk. Um, and then what does the new process or program do differently? We're not focused on punishment or sanctions for this group. It's all about rehabilitation. So at this point, I'm just going to say, what if rehabil rehabilitation doesn't exist? Like, what are these rehabilitation programs? I would love to know specific names of the rehabil rehabilitation programs um, beyond just like a treatment court model. Like, what are the actual programs? Okay, so I'm going to continue reading. We also start the process much sooner than the traditional track would. If someone needs assistance getting their driver's license back or getting their GEDs or getting into a chemical dependency program, that's what we do. Each person's diversion plan is individualized and involves a combination of voluntary referrals and mandates. So can I tell you, do you have a response? I'm, I'm opening up this can of worms. I can't believe just what I typed and what I got. Uh, I just typed in Association of Prosecuting Attorneys, uh, Kirsten Paps. Would you care to guess what the first result is? And it's not Ooh. the association, anything to do with what we're... What is the first result? Have? It's Missoula County Tyranny. Nice. <laughs> no, I take it back. No. Uh, it's Missoula County Attorney. Kirsten Paps has literally registered the domain name MissoulaCountyAttorney.com as her campaign website. And would you like to know what she has <laughs> on her campaign website? Oh, please. Uh, be, be, on the bottom, she has a list of all the people she's put behind bars. And she's taken their mug shots and she's made it black and white to make them look bad. So you know she kept the bad people off the streets. You, yeah. Do you, you know guys, Marcus Karma? Do you know that case? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, he's one of the examples of the bad people she's taken off the streets. Yeah, Marcus Karma is a very interesting case because um, Marcus Karma essentially set up a, a garage 
uh, hopping situation. So a little history on me back in the day in suburbia, um, when I was doing some of my high school time back there, garage hopping is a term referring to going around a suburban area and the idiots that felt safe enough to leave their garages open. You'd sneak into the garage to look for beer and take beer, right? That was, that was the idea. And so a German exchange student, uh, made a mistake of going into a sort of like baited garage situation and, and, uh, Marcus Karma uh, shot and killed him with a shotgun. Um, and then before that body was cold, um, state representative Ellie Hill was like on CNN, basically trying to push some castle doctrine bullshit. Um, it was amazing. I've tried to find the clip because she like showed her baby and her gun, her own gun in the same clip. It was fucking amazing. That, that Ellie Boldman, Ellie Hill, Ellie, uh, what's her other one? Smith. Um, so, so I was very familiar with that case. My parents lived in the neighborhood where Marcus Karma uh, lived and Marcus Karma was prosecuted the way the law was intended and he was put in prison. So, um, the law worked in that situation and I'm, I'm glad Kristen Pabst like has that as one of the, her little cases. Another case that she's going to be um, promoting, um, because I've seen her actually promote it is the Charles Covey murder case. So we actually just passed the year anniversary of Lee Nelson being brutally, brutally beaten to death in broad daylight on November 20th, 2020. Um, I knew Lee Nelson very well from my time working at the Pavarella Center. That was about a year ago. Yeah. It was a year. I mean, today is the, the 22nd. 22nd. So two days ago was the year anniversary. Um, and I have a picture. There's a picture of him over there. You can go to the Oxford where you like to go. And I think they have his, his helmet that he used to wear with like the horns. Um, and so Charles Covey is a psychopath that showed up from Idaho. Um, apparently, you know, I don't know, was screened through our homeless, uh, coordinated outreach or our coordinated entry system. I would hope he was screened somehow, but, um, him being a psychopath didn't pop up in any like of their tests. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, as we look at who was prosecuted and who is not prosecuted, um, it's, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, well, can I also maybe intervene here too, because something that we discussed when we first started doing the podcast, that was really focused more on the Johnny Lee Perry situation was the fact that the Pavarello made a policy change from a dry to a wet shelter. Correct. And I mean, I don't have any kind of crime statistics in front of me, and, and maybe you could say it's this coincidence and happened at the same time as COVID, but it really does seem to me the impression I got is that the amount of violence that's associated in that area really has gone up. And when you allow meth and allow people who are intoxicated, <laughs> drunk, whatever, uh, to, to be welcome and you don't screen them or keep them away or, or, or treat them any differently from someone who's sober on the streets. Uh, on, on Halloween, a car was, was torched. Um, there's video footage that NBC Montana put out. And let me tell you a quick, quick story. Um, so there's a client that I'm familiar with and I ran across her. She's an old native American woman. Um, and I just this morning actually confirmed parts of, of the story. Okay. So when we talk about, um, people that have been caught up in the system, um, she came out of prison and she has not yet been to her payee. I went and talked to her payee today and her payee said that she really needs to see her because her social security is inactive. Okay. So, um, this native American woman, um, I ran across her and I got a phone call from her because I gave her my card on Friday because she's cold and she's sleeping in a truck with this dude and she is on a permanent loss of services. I think that might from the Pavarello Center. So the main shelter and then the Johnson Street shelter, which is now that sort of low barrier facility, from my understanding, which means low barrier is a euphemism for a wet shelter, which is a euphemism for, you know, if you're fucked up, you can stay inside and maybe not die. Um and so, so I was talking to this client and there are some, some things that can happen to get her on the path back to having some funding 
it's a long path. The payee says she has to start from the beginning with Social Security, which is a tough thing. Um, but when I when I talked to her at the end of last week, she didn't even know about the Johnson Street shelter. No one had informed her yet. Um, she did have the paperwork from the POV to get off the permanent out list, but uh, I called the homeless outreach team today and just um, gave them information, you know, one direction. They can't say anything to me for confidentiality, but I can certainly talk to them. Um, I d I'm not bound anymore by any kind of nonprofit um, confidentiality issues. I can say that this person, you know, is in this situation um, and you can do some things to help. You know, this is how I would have done it if I was working as the homeless outreach coordinator back in the day. And so it's it's just frustrating because there there you know there's a path to getting some people some help, um, but w what is actually happening? I mean, we we now have the announcement of Larchmont Golf Course, you know, which we mentioned I think a little bit last week, um, and and so the temporary safe outdoor space, which is owned by Blue Lion Development, which they tried to hide when this reporting was happening um, around the temporary safe outdoor space last winter, um, that's going to be the potential future spot for a golf course which is nice since it can't really be developed for housing since it's in a floodplain and there's no sewer out there. And then Blue Line Development would get, in whatever weird deals being proposed, the Blue Line Development would get to develop the, the Larchmont Golf Course. 2,000 units of housing, they say. And Rip Danny Tenenbaum, who's not representing this part of the Missoula County, but um, you know, he's an HD95, I believe. Uh, he's all supportive. All the progressives are lining up behind this Larchmont Golf Course scheme for Blue Line Development. And I'm just like, Jesus, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Help me with the, for the patience. What's the serenity prayer? I feel like I need the serenity prayer. Wisdom God to know the difference. God grant me the wisdom to accept the things I cannot change. I don't know. And know the difference. Some kind. People know what we're saying. They, they understand the sentiment. But um, let me know. I'm going to go back to this prosecutor book really quick because there's more interesting stuff in here. Okay. Uh, narrative control, information war. That's what we were talking about last week. Um Listen, listen to this. This is, this is one of my favorite, favorite parts, okay? The question is, how do you keep the community informed about and involved in these policy and practice changes? Okay, here's the answer. I feel strongly that I have an obligation to, com to communicate with the citizens who elected me. The best way to do that is to have an open and ongoing dialogue with them via the media. Among my avenues to do so, I appear on a weekly radio show. I think that's KGVO where I run through new complaints my office has filed and I talk about new programs such as diversion. I also respond, diversion, AKA doing nothing. Um, I also respond to media requests for information to share what we can with the public about individual cases. Uh, what if they can do nothing? Um, along the way, we talk about how important it is to make improvements. It's not about indicting the way things have happened in the past, but acknowledging that we can do a better job. Resources are finite, and we need to use them in the most responsible way we can. It's not about indicting what we've done in the past. I mean, we all know what that means, right? Kirsten Paps was featured pretty prominently in that Missoula John Krakauer book. Um, <laughs> and she was quoted as going yep. up to U of M during one of the student Title IX rape trials and saying that a, a person... She was asked directly because in, in the case, they claimed that the girl involved was unconscious and therefore because she had fallen asleep, uh, she had given consent when she was awake, but because she was intoxicated, she ended up falling asleep, that, that Kirsten Papp said, well, it's not really a strong yes or no. She disputes this, of course. John Krakauer says that he has the records of, of the transcript of the trial saying she said that, but she disputes it. The... 
Oh, there was, me, a, there was an ongoing legal case that Krakauer had to try and get more documents released, right? Well, yeah, because one of the the two major Grizzly football people, Go Grizz, uh, was a student at the time, and so they said that they didn't have to release the records of investigating him for rape because he was covered under uh, student privacy laws. And so he, this actually was weird because it wasn't... Uh, decided at the U of M level actually went up to the Board of Regents and it was the Regents who made that decision. So oh, Krakauer sued the yeah, Regents to try right. that information. And the Montana Supreme Court, I think, ruled in favor of him that he was uh, expected uh, a level of privacy and that was included in it. The Interesting. I'm, I'm trying to... Th I had a really good thought about this because I'm, I'm sitting here... Okay, it's regarding her... The, the reason I go so fucking hard on people like Gwen Florio and I go so hard on Kyla Spaltzer is, is they, everyone in the Missoula press knows that to have so many victims of sexual assault and discrimination, okay, when the Justice Department came in, they did an 18-month period where they investigated Missoula PD and, and the University PD. They found over 250 victims uh, or women or, or, or people who had said that their cases had been not, not handled rightly, not correctly investigated, not followed up on. Uh, this was cited that the Missoula police had referred to Kirsten Paps 115 different cases where their recommendation was this person be arrested and prosecuted for rape. Out of 115, Kirsten Paps uh, actually took to trial 15 out of those. Now, there's a lot involved. Most prosecutors don't want to go and try to prosecute cases unless they're 100% sure they're going to win. Maybe they don't feel they have the evidence or they can't convince the unless jury. Unless they're going whatever. after Brandon Bryan, a whistleblower, um, for felony intimidation charges, in, in which case you just maybe want to make uh, a chilled sentiment among other activists that you know, you're know you risking felony charges for making the city council members feel unsafe. Yeah. Well, and my point is I worked at Missoula County 911 for a time, and I remember when you first get on and you're in training, you work the worst shift, and the worst shift is overnight shift. Uh, so I would be there from like 10, 11 at night till 6, 7 in the morning, and I would be there when Peter Christian would call every morning at like 4 a.m., 4, 5 a.m., and he would say, who's the sergeant on duty? Have them call me. And that person would always call Peter back. And he'd let him know what happened over like the past 24 hours or yeah, so. So yeah. Peter would always have the past day's news ready and going at like 4 or 5 in the morning. So I just don't understand how Gwen Florio can't do that. Uh, Kirsten Pabs, Kyla Spitzer, all these people who say that they're the heroes of this whole rape scandal. But somehow a guy like Peter Christian, I mean, we have numerous examples that we've talked about this in the show, uh, including the issue with the two dead children where... Uh, it doesn't seem to be in many of the other things like the Missoula Current or the Missoulian. We have so many of these basic news stories. And if they had just done what Peter Christian had would done, could we have caught this rape camp thing sooner? If they had actually went after the university a bit more, this was what really chapped my ass too back. I, I want to go off on a little bit about this yeah. because this is what I was talking about when we saw the Missoulian property being uh, bought Ooh, for by condos by Cole, Cole Berquist. Berquist. Yes, a, a former QB of, of the Grizzlies. Who's now a real, real estate agent? Some some financial group like that Cole Berkowitz is a part of. It was a, it was D back. It was a spring uh, incident where there were members of the Grizzly football team and they got into a physical altercation at a party and the Missoula police came and they actually got in physical altercations with the police. Now at the time, uh, Hauk and they, they oh, didn't I file reports. I remember of this. that. Yeah. So so it wasn't until September when the Grizzly football season started and several of the key starters were not on the field and it was the Kaiman who was like, Hey Bobby Hauk, why aren't these guys playing today? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. And and they did digging and they linked it back to the fact that he was punishing them for this incident in which they got into physical altercations with the Missoula Police Department. Wow. And interesting. The Missoulian didn't mention it. They didn't mention it for six fucking weeks because I remember when it happened 
I went and looked at the Missoulian because I was like, oh, this is a big scandal that Hauk is shutting out the student newspaper at the university that pays his salary. Uh, is there any more information? Nothing in the Missoulian. But what was in the Missoulian was a big advertisement for Bobby Hauk's reading program where he took little <laughs> children to the side and read books to them. So so the Missoulian can fully oh, run on a PR shit, campaign for, for the Grizzlies and for their coach at the same time he's like hiding his players for assaulting the police. And, and somehow the Kaiman, this became a national news story, Travis. It wasn't six weeks later till wow. ESPN was covering this spat between the Kaiman and how that the Missoulian even fucking mentioned it. So don't sit here and tell me that Peter Christian can call at 4 a.m. every morning, figure out what the fuck the police did yesterday, but Gwen Florio and the Missoulian and Jim Strauss and Kyle, they can't wow. do an even basic work. Okay. Wow, I, for, I, I completely forgot about that. Thank you. This is oh man. So um, I brought up a, a, a an old blog post. I, I want to um, because it mentions uh, Florio because Florio was one of the uh, sort of lead reporters doing coverage back during um, the rape scandal, um, and and so Jay Girl was the blogger at 420 Blackbirds that did some um, blogging that actually got mentioned later on in Krakauer's book. But this was the post that was on June nineteenth, two thousand twelve. And it's interesting because this was the, the, the attention that got uh, Kirsten Papps to remove. She had her own sort of blog, right? And she removed information because of um, lashing out. She lashed out and then had to remove it. So um, at the very beginning, it says this, this post is updated. Um, so this is Jay Girl, June 19th, 2012. Tonight, I sit with two very different pieces of writing, both which leaves me with a did they really say that feeling. For now, I think we'll go with Miss Papps blog. In her personal blog on an um, undated post, Kirsten H. Paps of Paps Law Office takes on the Missoulian with a post titled, Why Reporters Should Be Elected Officials. No link. Sorry, Ms. Paps has now removed the post. Um, let's see. Uh, really? Let's absorb the concept a moment. Reporters should be elected officials? The logic behind her reasoning is that reporters, quote, are apparently accountable to no one. Elected officials are the ones who should bring us news because they are, quote, elected, represent the populace, and operate within a time-honored system of checks and balances. So that's coming from Pap's blog that she removed. Um, she cites the example of an elected mayor that, quote, when enough of us disagree with his job performance, we elect another one. If he violates the law, there are legal avenues available to hold him accountable. I will say right now that Mayor Engen is um, rumored to have been um, removed from an airplane because of his drunken behavior. Um, there is rumors that Mike Brady, the police chief at the time, um, helped hide some stuff that Mayor Engen was doing. So, and, you know, Kirsten Paps. Yay! So let's go on with this blog. Um, <laughs> after she cites the example of an elected mayor. Um, apparently a mayor, because, and okay, this is J-Girl. So back to J-Girl. Apparently a mayor, because he is elected, is better to report the news because A, we can get rid of him if we don't like him, and B, right in her own words, quote, there are legal avenues available to hold him accountable, end quote. I had no idea journalism operated in its, in its a vacuum where, or in a vacuum where the law does not apply to it. According to Ms. Pabst, journalism lacks, quote, checks and balances. Yep, tell it to Rupert Murdoch, um, remember 2012. All of this is based on what she calls the, quote, Missoulians campaign to make the people of Missoula believe we are in the midst of a sexual crisis to frighten people into buying papers. Whoa, that's a fancy quote coming from Kirsten Pabst, our current county attorney. Fantastic. Um, let's continue. The great 
let's make Missoula look like shit conspiracy that all newspapers do. That's J-Girl. Um, and is also good for the guys in the advertising department. Yeah, I mean, the Missoula did, the, I'm sorry, the Missoulian um, did face, I think, backlash for the reporting they were doing. Um, so back to the blog post. According to Ms. Pabst, and you know, I do want to hope that she is right because we'd all be better off. Um, this is a lengthy quote from Kirsten Pabst's blog post that was removed. Without getting into inappropriate detail, I assure you that the foundation of the string of sexual scandal articles is not based in fact. The unfortunate reality is that the officials in charge of setting the record straight have their hands tied by the Montana Confidential Criminal Justice Information Act. When the police and prosecutors decline to file charges against a suspect, all of the facts, especially the identities of the parties, are legally sealed. The reason for this rule is obvious. When there is not enough evidence to file charges against someone, the accused person remains legally innocent, and they should not be subjected to public humiliation unless there is proof of wrongdoing. So, you know, if you if you stab someone four times, and it's cool because nothing was, was brought in terms of charges, you don't want to humiliate the guy that stabbed him just because he may have, like, threatened his mom in Florence later, you know? Um, so now let's hop back to the blog post, and then I'll take a breath. Take a breath. And so this is back to J-Girl. Well, it's hard to argue with that, certainly. But does it not have the faint sound of that darn student code of conduct that President Royce Ingstrom hides the university felons behind? One has to wonder why the former Miss Paps left her position with the county just this past March. Chief Deputy County Attorney from Missoula County's Criminal Division is able to call out the Missoulian for reporting facts while ignoring University of Montana Royce Ingstrom publicly admitting that a rapist escaped, oh, that's referring to the Saudi student, um, or that he has removed eight students from campus after his own independent investigation revealed enough evidence to merit expulsion. Aren't there laws about hiding felons, criminals? What the hell is obstructing of justice? And just where are those eight expelled students living now? On Garfield Street, River Road, Hellgate Meadows? Easy to... Every defendant is entitled competent representation. That I don't deny. But as Don Pograba of Intelligent Discontent points out below in the comments, Ms. Pabst has an inherent conflict which isn't apparent in her private manifesto on journalism. Ms. Pabst, while still the county's chief deputy attorney for the criminal division, testified on behalf of a student accused of sexual assault during a university hearing. Yeah, you know, this is... And I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, I can't. Was it Jordan something? Do you remember the quarterback that was involved in all that? I think it was Jordan something. Because uh, Bone Donaldson was the one that they had the... Uh, uh, they pretty much had that kid dead to rights because he had multiple other women come and testify at his trial that the same things had happened to them. So it was kind of a slam dunk prosecution. But, uh, gosh, I want to say the guy's name it was It was Johnson. No, I, I have it here. Jordan Johnson. Because yeah. oh, this is what we're saying, though, that in multiple instances, Kirsten Paps has foregone what we would consider her normal uh, obligations as a county attorney to go help the accused or help the defense. It wasn't just the rape case that was held under the Title IX hearing uh, that's mentioned in the book, but also the second major rape case of that book is the, the Jordan Johnson trial. And she literally went from being the uh, deputy county attorney in which her and Van Valkenburg were supposed to be prosecuting oh, these rapes yeah. for Montana County. She quit in the middle of it to become a defense attorney 
for Jordan Johnson oh, at his right. rape trial, and he ended up getting acquitted. So she she went out of her way as a deputy county attorney to go up to U of M and say, according to the transcripts in Krakauer in the book, that someone who is unconscious can perhaps consent to rape. And then when it was also her job as deputy county attorney, she resigned to go and work on the defense against her own boss. She had actually that been so on fucked. the other side. And I don't know if she had access to the to the stuff that they were compiling but when that's they decided a question. to take this to trial. That's a valid question. That's so fucked, man. I mean, in two separate incidents, she appears to have taken the moral responsible stand to go up and defend these boys against these accusations. And in her uh, capacity as deputy county attorney, you know, wouldn't even prosecute 80 to 90 percent of the cases that were referred to her by the police department. So. I don't know. And then she runs for the office because she's so hard on crime. And, you know, she has a whole list of guys and, and women here on her website that she's kept off the streets. I mean, she's not mentioning the people who went on to murder after she let him go. I don't see them. On like the now. like the Christopher New New Knight or um, exactly that, that situation. Yeah, so I, it's so hard to even keep the names. Let me let, let me read this. Point. Let me. OK, th- let me read this again. So um, I'm going back to this bullshit book called To Prosecute. Um, listen to this question and then, and then her answer. So this is back to the Kirsten Pabst uh, interview. Um, How did you address any external pushback from stakeholders such as law enforcement or the defense bar? And this is her response. It's been challenging to convince the public defender's office that it's worth their time to advise individuals who haven't even been criminally charged yet. It's a clunky part of the process that we have to work out. Law enforcement was also skeptical at first and felt like people were going to escape punishment. Um, that's what I hear that actually like law enforcement if, um, in unguarded moments and, and being honest have actually expressed this sentiment. But I only hear that, you know, secondhand. So I can't confirm that. Um, she goes on involving them early in the planning process helped, as did being careful about who was eligible. Now we are getting referrals directly from law enforcement. Last but not least, we've had to work to strengthen our ties with treatment providers. There are limited options around here, so it's been a challenge helping participants get chemical dependency evaluations in a timely manner. Um, and that part is absolutely true. When, when she's talking about diversion, okay, this whole idea of diversion, divert to what? That is the question. If there are not viable programs that take Medicaid, so, um, the reason why I know this shit is because seven years working at a homeless shelter and then three years working at an area agency on aging where I worked in an information center. I was a information like call center specialist. Okay. So very aware of the treatment options, very aware. And they are terribly inaccessible, terribly all of the, the money, all of the lip service, it doesn't make treatment more viable when as a state, we are a um, low population state. That means not a lot of money is going into our Medicaid program. We are not Washington state. We are not Oregon state. We do not have big city centers with millions of people. Um, and even those places are, are overrun with their fucking liberal policies, right? Which is the reason why a book like San Francisco exists in the fucking first place. And so, God... I guess the energy for me is up now because I'm now I'm getting a little fired up and I'm going to try and calm back down a bit. But it's it's maddening because um, I'm glad she at least acknowledged finally that like you know not a limited options around here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm, this is what we were sort of talking about before when you talk about the outsized influence when it comes to small areas. Is you know this one person, Kirsten Paps, has a huge amount of influence, and the question is, if she has that much power, is she accountable to anything? And if the ballot box is the only time they're ever going to be accountable in a Democrat state where you just put a D by your name or excuse me, town uh, and, and win everything, 
this is an issue I had with both parties because it's an issue with Pelosi, it's an issue with AOC. If you never believe that you can ever uh, be fired or lose an election or, or the union's going to protect you no matter what your behavior is, yeah. the question is, do we really have power that is accountable to the people anymore? And that's that's the issue I have with Kirsten Paps is if you have these people who like Tester or John Engen or Kirsten Paps who literally can have the job until they're dead, uh, is that providing good justice for the people of Missoula? Is that providing good government policy for the people of Missoula? Is that providing good policy for the people of Montana so, to have so unaccountable? Kirsten hears Kirsten, and the same Kirsten thing hears on the right. you. Okay, Kirsten hears you. She she hears your worry about um, just letting people you know go out there and continue to do bad things if there's not treatment options. And and this is her response because she knows that and she's okay. gonna she's gonna tell you, Tim. Right? I want to hear. Tell okay, me. she's gonna tell you. So she'll say that. We all share concerns that something might go wrong and someone might get a break in our program uh, will offend again. In fact, that will surely happen. It has happened, but that eventually or but that eventuality shouldn't preclude every other participant from having the opportunity to lead a productive life. Of course, that fear creates a lot of pressure, especially on elected prosecutors. Ooh, okay. I'm going to touch on that. Um, so of, of course the, that fear that they have that fear, um, and it creates a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure and that's, you know, hard on, especially the elected prosecutors, her, um, we have to run for our job. If someone is released pretrial and overdoses, for example, or heaven forbid that person commits a new violent crime, the public sees that as a failure. I guess if the public sees it at all. Um, so that's yeah, they have to know about it. That's first. really interesting because um, you know part of what I've been looking at in terms of larger trends, something that I've actually had a conversation with uh, with uh, Brad Binkley and Monica Perez from the Propaganda Report, um, is is one of Kirsten Pabst's advocacy elements is to basically say uh, at the in, in these national uh, that national prosecutors organization um, that prosecutors are dealing with <clears throat> excuse me are dealing with vicarious trauma. And because of that, um, you know, it's they. I mean, I'm not denying that. I'm what I'm seeing is is all speculation on my part. This is all at this point just speculation. But um, from what I sort of am intuiting and and sort of understanding with the system that I've seen up close and personal, is that there seems to be this element of taking the defense victim card strategy and playing the victim card for prosecutors to create this um, barrier or the sense like a, a sort of a room, uh, a space between that makes it harder to hold them accountable. Um, because if it's so hard on them in the, in the pressures they're under, you know, then it's like, okay, that's, the, but that's the job. And it's also um, hard for a service provider like me to get assaulted, you know, by a meth head behind um, the Union Gospel mission, which is a true story. It happened to me. And luckily when he um, said he was going to kill me, it was in front of a nurse at, at St. Pat's. And so that allowed me to get a permanent order of protection. Otherwise it might've been difficult to get an order of protection when it's a hearsay situation. Um, I mean, it's a very challenging system and, and in a lot of ways, I think I have understood in the last couple of years, the power to omit the power to not prosecute. Um, and from what I am continuing to hear, 
it puts law enforcement in a serious situation of, of trying to manage and mitigate uh, mental health crisis, addiction issues um, on the streets. And then with the COVID you know, pandemic, of course, you limit access to shelters, you limit access to jails, hospitals are in their crisis, you know, allegedly. And so it just creates this pressure cooker. In the meantime, there's this element of wanting to keep our community, the PR version of it, safe for investment, safe for all of the money that's going to be used. This like midtown plan was just in the, oh, in the Missoula current. I was reading it feeling very triggered myself, but um, it just, you know, the reality on the ground with what we're dealing with, with crime, addiction, mental health issues, it is bad. It's getting worse. Well, um, and, and let's talk about something that is the experience, because this is where we sort of get what we're told and what the reality is, because I've been seeing several uh, news articles lately saying, you know, that crime is going down. And, and in my personal experience, I find that a lot of crime happens that no one ever even reports because they're not confident that it's going to do anything, that actually anything is going to yeah, learn, happen. Learned helplessness does create um, a lack of reporting and a lack of reporting could create data um, that shows numbers are going down, just like the, the point in time survey that used to or this still happens in January every year. And that's like the data that that really um, communities rely on to get HUD money federally. Um, that that point in time data can be very skewed depending on how many free lunches or free breakfast you're throwing the day of the, the, the count, how much energy and effort you're actually putting to count. Um, so maybe early on when you want to have those numbers high for funding. Um, yeah. And then you put a little bit less energy. You're not necessarily putting the outreach teams out to all the camps to count. You're not going and finding people in their cars as much. Um, and those numbers go down. And then you can say, well, look at that. Homelessness is going down. It's yeah. amazing. And this reminds me of a personal story I have. I had a friend who used to have a gallery downtown over on North Higgins. And the thing that he found out was it was counterproductive to call the police because, number one, if you call the police for every time something happens, then the police show up. Well, enough times where your customers drive by and see your business has cop cars in front of it, uh, they're probably not going to come back. It actually can hurt business to do what's, quote, unquote, the correct thing. Uh, he found out that it was better to just engage the guys, you know, talk to them for five, ten minutes and then eventually get bored and move on. Like there were he was able to do business much better by by trying to proactively personally deal with them because it was the same guys. It was the same half dozen characters that have to figure out what to do with their day around the library and around the courthouse. Uh, but but that's the thing is if, if we just looked purely at the police numbers, if, if that's the only source we have for compiling whether Missoula has high crime or not, uh, we, we will never get a complete picture. But you, you don't know what these private citizens have to deal with. To this guy, he didn't want to lose his business. That's where he was getting to the point of like, do I want the impression, which I can't manage except for when I call the police, to be that people will be unsafe in my store. I think a lot of uh, businesses are probably dealing with that in Missoula, especially this West Broadway corridor. That was the whole point of Sean Knopf's campaign uh, was, yeah. was what we are dealing with is not what we're being told and our problems are being ignored. And, you know, of course, government's the first place you're going to go if, if that's the consensus. So one of the one of the things brought up by San Francisco is that um, some of these more like liberalized European countries, mm -hmm. um, the, the things that they did uh, to decriminalize drugs did not actually preclude uh, holding people accountable and not having open air drug markets. OK, you're speaking um, my language. I know. I know. And so I'm going to read this. This is from page 42 of San Francisco. Um 
And I want to read this because I think just it shows the picture of what's happening here. So it's very interesting. So uh, drug overdoses are today the number one cause of accidental death in the United States as a result of America's historic addiction and overdose epidemic. Overdose deaths rose from 17,415 in 2000 to 93,330 in 2020, a 536% increase. Significantly more people die of drug overdoses today than of homicide or car accidents. The overdose crisis is worse in San Francisco than in other cities. In Seattle, Phoenix, and Chicago, there were 23, 46, and 48 overdose deaths per every 100,000 people in 2020. In San Francisco, there were 81. Overdose deaths rose from 196 in 2015 to 713 in 2020. Just over half occurred in the Tenderloin, the Intermission, and south of Market. There are about 25,000 injection drug users in San Francisco, a number 50% larger than the number of students enrolled in the city's 15 public high schools. San Francisco gives away more needles to drug users, 6 million per year, than New York City, despite having one-tenth the population. When you walk through the open-air drug scene, so that's the term that he uses, uh, open-air drug scene. And, and I want to mm-hmm. focus in on that, because if, if we want to get in this book, um, I think there's some preconditions. If you really want to find a really good coverage of where we've kind of went wrong as far as our attitudes towards a drug war, I think the, the book by Michael Schellenberg, San Francisco, is a really good place to start, because it really sets the scene completely for what we thought about in the 80s, how we changed that in the 90s, and how it leads us to what we're doing today. And one yeah. of them is is you don't just look at like homeless shelters. It's not just the bad part of town. He specifically says we need to call this an open air drug market because yeah. it's very descriptive of the circumstances involved. And that is what is happening around the Pavarello Center. They're they're making an effort now um, after cars have been literally fucking torched. And that's where yeah. Johnny Lee Perry was living before he was shot and killed by sheriff deputies was on Hawthorne Street right next to the Pav. So let me continue reading from this book. When you walk through the open-air drug scenes in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, Skid Row in Los Angeles, and the Blade in Seattle, you see people of all races and ages injecting and smoking fentanyl, heroin, meth, and other hard drugs right there on the sidewalk near where they bought them. This has been the case to some extent since the 1990s, and the Tenderloin drugs were everywhere, said Tracy Helton Mitchell, who moved from the Midwest to San Francisco to, in part, maintain her addiction. There was crack on one street, people high on meth on another. People slept everywhere and everywhere on the street. Like many women addicted to hard drugs, Mitchell turned to prostitution. I I never thought I would have sex with anyone for money. Heroin made it so easy. But things have grown worse over the decade. It's the Wild West, said a man who lived in the Tenderloin in June 2020. You hear screams in the night and the sounds of power tools cutting through bike locks all day. The alley has long been a magnet for homeless people but petty drug dealer and petty drug dealers, but it's never as bad as it is now. The number of people combining opioids and stimulants has grown. I did crack and heroin both, said Tom Wolf. The amount of people using meth and fentanyl at the same time is growing. The combination is known as a goofball. goofball. Yeah. Indeed, the number of opioid-using Americans who also use methamphetamine rose 83% between 2011 and 2017, from 18.8% to 34.2%. Other studies find similar results. And I will say, Johnny Lee Perry came to Missoula from Oakland. Yeah. He came here from Oakland. So, um, you know, from, from what has been allowed to happen... You know, these these um, tragedies and crises are just like not going treated, not going um, with any kind of stick carrot approach when there's no scare, no stick and no carrot. You have fucking anarchy. And that's one of the reasons why I left my job at the POV in 2016 is because I literally had clients, 
you know, when I'd be like, hey, this behavior, you know, the cops are going to get called if you guys don't don't do this or change some of this behavior. They'd be like, go ahead, call 911, Travis. They're not going to do anything. Um, and for a little background, the homeless outreach program, when I ran it, the whole idea was that the hotline was a precursor to 911 for nuisance behavior. Yeah. That was my big uh, emphasis is that nuisance behavior in the downtown core was an option for for this um, this softer approach, a conversation, you know, so we didn't waste resources. I, I was directly involved in this diversion idea before it even got to a criminal charge, before Kirsten Paps even had a fucking deal with it, right? Um, and and so there, there are, I think, some ideas in this, but when there was no consequence, I started feeling the threat get yeah. more pervasive. I was attacked by a guy who was on meth, who was a crazy motherfucker, right? I mean, that's what scares me right now about the current time is I really feel pretty much everyone's understood that uh, this government and this media is not going to help you with any of your problems in the least unless they fall within this very narrow sketch of the stuff they care about, racism, et cetera. There's a couple points that I've also, I'm not through the book yet, but uh, when you talked about the increasing overdose numbers, one thing that he makes a very uh, good discussion of is there is what we call shelter versus housed, okay? Are you just getting a roof over your head like you're in a tent at the south end of town at the night, or you actually get into housing? And he makes the case that until you deal with the addiction issues first, it doesn't actually help someone to get into housing because now they just have a safe, warm, dry place to keep doing their drugs. And they're not going to have anyone check on them anymore. At least they're on the streets. Like people sort of form relationships out there and they check on each other from time to time. Absolutely. They figure out who the good people are and who the bad people are. And at least out there, uh, you know, if you're slumped over on the sidewalk, there's probably someone in proximity who might like tap you or see what's going on. If you're just in, you know, some little studio bedroom with a voucher for Medicaid and you overdose on heroin, then then no one's even going to know for a couple of weeks. So, well, I, so I check in with an individual out at Reserve Street because um, I, I'm still involved in this uh, on, on some level and having some conversations. And this this social butterfly of the camps. Um, does that goes and checks in and so you know when I get perspective it's him telling me that like he's seen a machete up close three times in a you know, aggressive threatening manner one of them was from a, a new guy that showed up from North North Dakota and was really really drunk but of course that guy apologized the next day thankfully but but here's here's a person um, who's had an experience with a machete three times okay and but it's still his choice to be out there um, versus inside the shelter when Sean Stevenson was assaulted and, and killed in, inside the Pavarello Center, um, I talked to people that were reluctant to stay at the homeless shelter after that happened. You know, um, you start losing some leverage. If, if getting into your own apartment is something that really is seen as, as uh, what you want to do, well, then maybe you have to show some some effort in a um, in a shelter situation that is hopefully more controlled than what it sounds like the a wet shelter without the proper training and staffing is. Um, but but you don't necessarily make it the most comfortable thing. But you also don't allow all these um, sort of like illegal encampments to just kind of go unchecked. I mean, there's such a balance that's required. But again, it's not like rocket scientists. Carrot stick. Well, Carrot stick. You have to have legitimate options for treatment, legitimate yeah. consequences for refusing treatment and doing antisocial behavior like killing and raping and, and that kind of stuff. Well, and it shouldn't get to that point either. I, this is the issue we're facing, you know, in San Francisco and in the, these cities where if you forgive all petty crime, like you can steal anything up to a thousand dollars and the police won't bat an eye then what you're really uh, not addressing the issue because they're stealing that stuff because of their drug addiction. They don't want women's clothing that badly that they're going to go in Nordstrom's 
take a. I was a just handful. gonna. I was just gonna say. Did you see like that Nordstrom's flash mob? Oh, I have to tell you, if you are ever sad about your life, please go on YouTube and subscribe to all of the Bay Area local news stations because I some evenings the last couple of weeks I just sit and look at all the crime, all this. I'm like, wow, I'm glad I live in Montana. I don't <laughs> deal with any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever want to love your life, go look at the Bay Area local news because they don't hide this stuff. They get right in their face. They're not like the national news. These guys, they have to fill space and there's always interesting shit to they don't, they don't, they don't they don't have they don't have Kirsten Papps showing up on KGBO once a week to do narrative control and the Missoulian oh, refusing to um, really even talk about Stephen Gill who was shot four times by law enforcement in 2019 um, in his back and like uh, there was a, a, a coroner's know, inquest too busy going in churches and recording you Travis These oh dead that's black right guys are like so far down their list when we, she's got angry white guys did we ever churches. talk about Teresa Manzola or we kind of did we haven't even gotten to that but let's keep going on this because yeah, I absolutely. think this is really good and and there's a couple other points I want to make one number one uh, the other point he makes in the book is that drugs have become tremendously cheap and easily available and this is a direct consequence of the immigration shit I was just thinking the other day because for some reason every single month that Joe Biden's been in office, we've had 100,000 to 200,000 illegal people come into this country, okay? Let's take an average 150,000 and let's times that times the 48 months that presumably Joe Biden's going to be in office. That's 7.2 million new Americans in four years, thanks to Joe Biden in wow. our complete... And that is... That's also at the cost of how many hundreds, what do we have, 100,000 people overdose on drugs uh, in fiscal year 2020 that just came out? Hmm. Um, yeah, there's a reason you can get a, a fentanyl for 2 or $3 or a hit of heroin for 5 or $6. And when you can go out on the corner and beg, you know, 10, 20 bucks in about a half an hour, if less, some people just hand you a fucking 20 if they see you out there. Uh, then, yeah, you've got your hit for the day. You've got what you're doing for the day. You get free food from the shelter. You know you have a place to sleep later, and they won't care if you're high. Uh, who, and <laughs> if they're not going to arrest you for any crime under $1,000, like, why not break into someone's you know, car? It doesn't hurt you. What, what's your 80th uh, B&E? Oh, who cares? They don't ever put you in jail for it. Absolutely. The, the, this is how do you bring people away from addiction and into society if you don't have even the most basic expectations for the behavior or consequences for when they harm others? Like, how, how do you even proceed along that? And it almost seems in this consequence, I... I don't know how to feel because he even mentions in the book he's because he talks about the people who are dying alone in in these this housing that they get them that the outcomes for the people who get into housing aren't better than the people on the street because they just end up dying alone from their addiction away from other people and yeah. then the outcomes end up being the same now we just have we'll move another homeless person with a heroin addiction well, into it, that it, once we move the body not out just, and wait for them to not die not just that um, I had conversations I mean how this actually plays out in a, in a local environment like Missoula is that um, not only... So these housing programs often have rules where people can't stay over. So imagine this, okay? You're in a homeless shelter. The support you get is from other people in a similar situation. You come up on the on the amazing list that you've been waiting forever, and you get a voucher, and you can get into this housing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in the cold months, you have to then say no to your friends who come over because um, if they if they stay and the the program manager or the program whatever you know doesn't give them clearance, and you have to usually submit that ahead of time. Um, and a lot of these people don't want to deal with the people in the nonprofits because it's already um, not a dignified situation, it's demeaning. Um, I mean, the whole situation is just kind of fucked. And so you, I would coach 
clients moving into the palace apartments downtown. It's yeah. really well managed right now. Um, but but still, that, that doesn't change the reality that I would say, hey, you might not want to even let people know where you're at because then if you let them know where you're at, you're going to have to say no to them at two in the morning on a cold November night. And that sucks. You don't want to do that. What you're going to do is you're going to let them stay for a couple nights, then it's going to get hard to kick them out after a week or two. And then you get caught um, violating the rules and you go back to the homeless shelter. I can't tell you how many people lose their housing after they get into it, because what it means is like to some extent cutting off that social support, you know? And so um, those are the the sort of real world on the ground uh, ways that some of these things play out. Yeah. I, I, I wish we would have a better discussion of this. I don't think we really talk about the stuff we've been talking about for the past 20 or 30 minutes in any kind of depth. I think we we have our very specific pictures of who we want it to look like. We always want it to be a mom with kids who just couldn't afford her rent and now she's out for the month and that's who we're giving to and we give to the homeless. It's very sticky uh, mess when we talk about someone with a drug addiction, someone who you know may have a criminal record. And, and the, the thing that really strikes me in talking about this is by keeping them on the streets and in this cycle, are they really better off than they were in jail? If At least if someone got into jail and got into a drug treatment program, then presumably we could actually get them away from this addiction that's preventing them from living a normal life. But as long as we have all these barriers where we are very permissive, I mean, this is why I wonder about the Pavarello Center. If you know there's such a history of violence there now, and even going there for your quote-unquote safe night, you have to deal with people on meth, people who are drunk, people who are you know just being obnoxious. Do you really feel safer going there? I bet there's well, a lot and, of people that won't go to the POV just because absolutely. there's such a history yeah. at this point. And they, they are hiring security to try and counter, counter that perception. One of the things that was interesting that Kirsten Paps mentioned in, in that bullshit book is um, the mothers on meth issue. And the fact that that was actually too high risk. And I find that interesting um, in part because, you know, the YWCA used to have a voucher, like a hotel voucher program for families. Um, and I worked very closely with a lot of the motels and the motel managers um, because that was a huge part of the cycle of homelessness is like, you know, the people I knew that had some level of uh, money or funding from like Social Security or SSDI or something like that. You know, they would get uh, money at the beginning of the month, oftentimes, you know, rent a, at a weekly rate, rent a, you know, motel room for a week or two to get out of the the, the con confined, you know, overcrowded like shelter situation, which it was at that point. Um, and so I, I, I talked a lot to the the motels and meth was a huge problem with um, some of the, the, the mothers, but, you know, not just mothers, but families in the motel situation where they were having to do meth mitigation because um, of the voucher program. So they stopped accepting vouchers. Right. Yeah. Um, now we have the situation with the new YWCA and I hope they're able to do more in in the in a shelter situation in that facility. But. Um, in the, in the post that I removed today, I mean, this is a young woman, it looks like who has some kind of a drug addiction and now criminal endangerment of children charge. Um, I did enough sort of digging to see, you know, like, I know she's native American. She's from the res. My, I mean, my heart this breaks knowing that like the, the, knowing that there are just so little programs to help, um, especially like, like young mothers and, and, and families. Um, but across the board, there just, there isn't enough in a state like Montana, um, you know, especially if you don't have private insurance, if you're relying on Medicaid, you know, we just don't have the services. Um, and, and so, you know, the politicians that continue putting lip service, especially ones with the just nasty scandal ridden history that Kirsten Pabst has. Um, and, and then thinking of TJ McDermott, the sheriff's department, the Westridge boys and these new municipal judges, 
Um, I hope people can take a cold, hard look at what's been going on the last couple of years, um, especially with the the increase in meth, um, the increase in violence. You know, um, even if you don't charge some of this stuff, I think it's still going to be hard to sort of narrative control um, the increased risk that people are feeling and experiencing in their own lives when bad things happen. Another thing I'll mention really quickly is at the Reserve Street camps, you know, I do talk to people, um, but people also have been arrested from out there. And some of those charges that people have in who are sitting in jail now have never been connected in the media um, to the homeless encampment. Um, these are no-go zones in some ways, um, and you know it's just it, it continues to be an issue. We have the temporary safe or now transitional safe outdoor space. Um, we have the Johnson Street Shelter. Uh, we have the main Pavarello Center. We have the YWCA. Um, we still have illegal encampments um, under the Reserve Street Bridge and around the Reserve Street area. We have a new spot by the sewage treatment facility that's going to be um, operational at Did some point. Did you hear about the Bitterroot? This guy just died on the side of the road. I did. That's I did yeah, hear about that. I think that. the the Ravalli Republic was was quoting we had two um, fatalities from cold weather. Uh, people who thought they can walk from Hamilton to Missoula because there is a walking path, but you know it's fifty Good miles Lord, long and Lord. it's twenty degrees out. It might be a hard walk. Well, but I want to mention two books really really quickly, just yeah. because I, I pulled a bunch of books out. But when when I think about drugs and the and the war on drugs and the cynicism that people should have. Two of the most amazing books that people should read, um, Drugs as Weapons Against Us by John L. Potash. So that last name is P-O-T-A-S-H. Uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. You get a lot of famous looking people on the cover of that book. I am passing it off to Tim to examine. Um, but he is a, f- a former service provider, kind of social service provider. Um, I think he was on the, on the East Coast, uh, Eastern Seaboard dude. And his perspective on just going even back to like the opium wars and and, and how drugs uh, really in, in the in the past have been seen as weapons to use against uh, foreign populations, domestic populations. And then the other book uh, got turned into a movie, which means that they wanted to control the narrative by making it into a movie. But this is by Gary Webb, Dark Alliance. And so when you when you hear uh, black folks talk about CIA bringing crack into the ghettos, um, not yeah. a conspiracy theory. Gary Webb, amazing reporting, um, and then shot himself twice in the head because that's how you do suicide when you're doing um, stuff like that. Well, like okay. If, if you do have Netflix, they have turned this into uh, a film. Uh, I think Jeremy Renner is is the guy who plays Gary Webb. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, Gary Webb was a reporter with the San Jose Mercury News way back in the day. Um, and he got contacted by the girlfriend of a big drug kingpin who was being held uh, basically in perpetuity uh, by the feds. And in trying to go through some of the documents, they found some connections to, uh, I think it was Rick Ross or... Was it Freeway? Freeway? I think it was. Freeway I haven't Rick. read the book in a while, if, if you're interested. But, but basically what he uncovered was that CIA operatives were being involved in a lot of these uh, drug crimes. And it, it sort of led him to find that a lot of the uh, drugs were being uh, funneled, uh, crack cocaine, especially in L.A. And, and San Francisco in the 80s, to, to fuel the drug addiction at the same time that Reagan was also demonizing the welfare queens, etc. Uh, he had pretty much everyone government come out and say he was lying, and they tried to ruin him personally, and, and of course his paper really didn't stand up for him. Uh, but years later, he was vindicated. The other thing I wanted to actually tell you, Travis, is I think there's another kind of issue uh, that we don't ever talk about, and especially in places like Montana, we seem to have a very laissez-faire, let-live attitude towards drugs. Um, I don't even 
say most of my growing up, I've, I've known people who've drove drunk. I had an uncle. Uh, well, back in the day, actually, you could just drive up. They had drive up liquor stores. Uh, the the oh, Reno yeah. out in East Missoula, if you see on the back of the building, they used to have a drive up liquor store there. I think in Wyoming and some other places, Wild they actually West. still have that. Yeah. It, and we're sort of coming out, and, and especially in Montana, where we have an older situation. People seem to love their booze here. Go to any Grizz game. You'll see it. People make their whole lives buying the most tricked out RVs so they can be here at 6 a.m. Saturday, you know, basically unconscious by the time the Grizz game even fucking starts. Gee, I wonder why we have a rape problem uh, around this Grizzly football thing when we have so many people who just use it as their excuse to be binge drinkers. And that was downtown briefly on on Saturday night, and it was a absolute shit show. I, I would love to see what overtime law enforcement had to use over this weekend um, because of drunk Grizz fans, um, just drunk people in general. Um, you know, I've been seeing because I continue to, to walk around downtown on the, on the weekend nights and it's it's very interesting. Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about is yep. we seem very used to seeing people either stoned or drunk. Or, we're just like, that's that person's problem. You know, it's it's rare that you would like call the cops every time. I, I don't know if it's this sort of Western libertarianism, but people like can manage their own. Addictions. So let, let me let me tell you a story. Um, I was recently at a conservator hearing um in some of the local stuff that, that I'm doing and interested in. And I was talking to a, a local woman and she was describing going out with a girlfriend, um, you know, sort of like, I think she might be a mom or she, she's, she's a little bit older now, like not like going down on the bar scene, but she was down on the bar scene, you know, I think outside the bad liner is what she said. And there was this guy that came up to her and like passed out and was begging for help and like, like was like almost like seizure esque in his like seeming distress. And so she was alarmed, called the police and uh, got a pretty negative reaction from EMTs because they had Narcan this dude twice already that fucking day. Oh, of course they have. Twice already that day. They were, I mean, the. I, I have actually talked to EMTs in in the last couple months. Um, it may have been like three months now, but um, the, the the person I talked to was still pretty fresh on the truck that he was he was on. Um, and so now I think it's been about a year that he's been on the truck. But I think it was maybe nine months when I was talking talking to him, and and he said, uh, was it the eugenics crew or someone that just basically the the gallows humor is like wanting to see them die? You know, some of these repeat folks that are just like. The, the amount of burnout and what's actually happening for the boots on the ground first responders is beyond what most normal people have any fucking clue. I mean, having worked at 911, you, you definitely see and understand an aspect of that. Did you see the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal? No, but I wanted to say I've also worked over a decade of my life in hotels and as a guy right, who right. was attending college, primarily overnight graveyard shifts. And I could tell you some... Uh, a hotel I worked at had this big prominent courtyard. Hotel so, or motel, because that's, you know, you think more, you know, sort of like the motel has a more negative connotation or maybe less less socioeconomically. No, but I think this is a really good illustration of how people in different uh, positions see the issue. Because if you're, you know, a cop or an EMT and you see this person in the same position over and over and over, but never changing in anything in their life, how are you supposed to take that? To you, it's like... Why don't you just do this one thing that will fix everything for you? And you don't understand the, the sort of mental issues going on in that person, whether they're being taken advantage of or whether they're not willing to, to actually face reality, what they might lose if they do face reality. Uh, Can I tell you another story real quick? Yeah, go ahead. So I, I talked to all kinds of different uh, groups when I was the homeless outreach coordinator at the Pavarello Center. And one of those groups was 911 dispatch people. 
And one of the things I was able to say is like, hey, you know, uh, uh, the guy, you know, DB was his initials, but I used his full name. Um, I'm like, you know, we, we do actually sometimes help people. I'm like, DB, have you guys gotten a call on him in a while? They're like, he's dead. I'm like, no, he's not dead. They're like, he's not dead? I'm like, no, no. I got him into a long-term motel room situation. And it was like a weekly um, situation, but it was maintained because um, the relationship I, st- I established with the saint who was the motel manager, the, like the longest-term manager, she was amazing. Um, but I realized that this guy, who's a chronic alcoholic, he would go to his payee, he would get the cash for the, the day or for the week, um, ostensibly to go pay for his his rents for the week but he would never quite make it there because there were too many sort of predators hanging around the payee's office knowing that people went there to get money and so he would start drinking people would like you know put a bottle in front of him knowing that if they got him drinking they could like get his money and so my limited role with this dude was meeting him to get the money he would have his little allowance to buy his his you know cheap alcohol to get drunk on, and I would take the cash and bike it to the motel and made sure that he had a place to get to at the end of the night, right? And so that was an equilibrium for this one individual that stopped a cycle of 911 first responders because he was behind the Dana Gallery. Um, like sometimes he would actually try and masturbate behind there. Um, like I'd find him with like porn mags and all these like like beer cans. I'd be like, what? DB, what are you doing? You know, like he would, the, one of the ladies, um, that was take, she wouldn't take trash. They, uh, they were taking their trash home to their house because they didn't want to go back in the alley on the chance that he'd be back there. And he was like, he'd like, it was, it was ridiculous, but, but I'm describing though, if you're on the ground, you see what seems like the most obvious thing you could do. You like to you in that situation, in that moment, everything seems clear. But you also have to think of all the policies and procedures that have been put up by the higher levels, by the mayor, by the people on the homeless task force, all this stuff. People who are so far removed from the actual event end up having a much more different view of it or what can be done to fix it because they're so removed from it. And then the people on the ground are supposed to implement these solutions that are like make no sense to them. Well, and that's why I was never popular uh, even at Missoula Aging Services because the coordinated entry system um, had, I don't know if it's changed at all um, you know, since then, but you know, in order to be assessed by this system, you had to meet a strict definition of homelessness. And I literally had conversations with people where I said, hey, where'd you sleep last night? Oh, at a friend's house. Oh, well, that's not homeless enough. You need to sleep outside or in a car. You can yeah. sleep in a motel, but if that motel is provided um, because of funding from another program, that's not homeless. So I'm just like, here's how you can be homeless. Here's how you can... That's not homeless enough. Can you get more homeless? Oh, that might be a medical risk to you. Well, sorry. Um, then lie. You know, I, I would, I would I oftentimes hint um, at just what the requirements were and what they chose to say to these, you know, um, sort of screeners was up to them. But um, that is an example of me as a service provider um, actually trying to work within the system of a coordinated entry system that uses a stupid restrictive definition of homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I literally heard the mayor in an interview that never, I, I think, aired, but I, I, I saw him on this interview refer to like, you know, being on a couch as being homeless and then you can get help. And I'm just like, no, that's not, that's not one of the definitions that, that gets you into the system, Mayor Engen. Like, yeah. and next year, I, I'll just mention next year, 2022 is the 10th year of the 10 year plan to end homelessness. It's called reaching home, Tim. 
Does that make yeah, you think? Yeah, let me bring this home because we're in pretty let's far down the rabbit hole. But let's I, bring I, it I think home. one thing that really has struck me from this book and perhaps changed my perspective is we just can't have such a permissive attitude towards drug addiction. It really does destroy yeah. people's lives and kill them. Uh, and if we don't address that, then we're not ever going to address any of the periphery issues. And, you know, to... That's a great summation of, of what our uh, 90 plus minutes of conversation has been. Well, it's this is a really hard one for us because I think it's one that we both, it really is a commonality of our values and actually looking at the messy reality of how do you actually get people with fucked up lives to improve them. And if it doesn't fit neatly in your little box of how you think they should do it or how the document thinks they should do it or the people in academia think they should do it, then it doesn't get done. And people stay on the streets and people continue down this this spiral that leads to death. I hate to say it. Um, and if we're not willing to, to put standards and make tough decisions and, and be willing to move away from our ideological thoughts of how this should look, then I don't think we're going to make any dents in solving it. And unfortunately, I, I really, this is why I was so disappointed with how the mayoral election go, because I thought we really had a, a way to try to change this and maybe get new blood in there. At least something would change if, if there was a new mayor. Um, I just don't think there's any motivation at this point to do anything differently. And they're keep going to tell us that we need to invest in pre-K to solve homelessness <laughs> and find all these million yeah. dollar developers who 10 years from now will have solved the housing crisis. And well, it's just I, keeps I, I, kicking I, 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 the can of spending money to help ourselves now and promise something might change later. I tell you what, um, every every new new iteration of their of their fucking gentrific gentrification schemes is a new opportunity for me to find new allies um, in this battle against a 16 year entrenched political establishment. Establishment that gives zero fucks um, about coming after you asymmetrically in a number of fun, creative ways if you challenge their uh, little fiefdom. And so I sent this great email um, to Larchmont so that they saw a bunch of my links to my coverage of Blue Line Development um, and the homeless industrial complex and how people like Susan Haypatrick, the executive director of United Way, um, uses homeless people like human shields to hide behind and how they use public-private partnerships, which I call woke fucking fascism because that's what it motherfucking is, um, to hide behind. And so I, I see opportunities all over the place, Tim, and it's, it's really exciting because um, you know, stuff like the, the Larchmont, uh, uh, development, you know, we're just, we're, we're being told in such high flutin terms, this will like solve the problem we have here. This, this will be transformative, transformational, you know? And I'm just like, it's the old uh, razzle dazzle for the 200th it, time. It, it's just, it, it is, it is a, a, a interesting situation, um, to continue tracking because, um, I, I know some of the, the mechanisms they're, 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 they're using, right? And with Larchmont, there's a medical aspect. They're saying like, oh, well, we're going to include some medical. And that's, I'm, I'm sure because that's out in the community medical center neck of the woods. I've covered how community medical center used to be a public asset. Um, they sold to a private interest. And now there's a $100 million Headward, Headwaters Foundation. They sit on this money and created a bunch of jobs for people, six figures to sit on. Um, and so... Um, medical is going to be one of the ways they try and, and, and have this nice sounding thing to float this development scheme, just like in the Scott street development, you know, it's, it's market rate housing and it's mixed use and it's like some affordable subsidized housing and, Oh, we're going to do daycare. Um, they try to float daycare as something that tax increment financing could be used, used for tax increment financing is for blight. You know, when the Missoula food bank uses it, uses it for a medical facility in there, it's like, okay. That was a new building. The Missoula Food Bank used funds intended to address blight in a new building for a medical yeah. facility. And so when they make the words mean nothing 
And that that's what they essentially do um, when you say that, that that funds for blight can be used in a new building. Then blight doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Blight well, is not a brand new building. That. I know. Can I, I know. mention something before we get to the end here? Yeah. Because uh, there is something going on on Sunday, November 28th, um, and Ooh. it directly talks about community. I, will I be was there. quite shocked that community came out and had such a hard line. Uh, they basically are telling all their employees for all their community. I think they run, you know, several hospitals and doctor's offices and such. If you don't have the vaccine within the next couple of months, you're just going to lose your job. Yep. And, and the thing that was so surprising to me is we live in what was the only state to actually put vaccine status as a protected status. So it's very explicit in the law that no employer, however big or small, can ask you about your vaccine status. And rather than challenge the law in court or wait for a federal mandate and say, oh, we have to follow the federal rules, they went on their own to their own employees and said, get the fuck out. These are the same people who are telling us that mm-hmm. we're completely overwhelmed by COVID right now. Yeah. And that there's no, that if you get COVID and you're unvaccinated, they can't promise you that you're going to get a good level of care. Uh, why would you be firing these people? And I think the, yeah. the other thing that really stands out to me also is many of these people have served over the past two years under some really hard, stressful situations. Absolutely. And they've still tried to do their best and to provide good medical care based on shaky information that's constantly changing. They're still out there because they have a belief in helping others to try to navigate this. They still work long hours and, you know, I'm glad they're paid well. I'm glad, you know, at least some of that healthcare expensivity is going to the people actually providing care. But to go and tell them, we're going to fire you, the people who probably know more about COVID and its effects than anyone on earth because they've been treating it for two years now and can see it every single day in their patients. If that person has a conscious objection or a medical objection or anything to this vaccine, why are they the first people you're going after? That's an attack. That's that's an attack on, on a person's ability to, to make a living for themselves and their, and their family, if they have one. Um, and I am very excited to support people like that. Um, I mean, what was the name? Of the, so Roy McKenzie at Missoula County Tyranny wrote about the the nurse, I think, and, and talked to her. Um, the the one that's so far been public about joining this this well, and there was a big big um day of protests from the EU. There's multiple yeah. large gatherings of people against the mandates. You know, not against doing things that would help your neighbor, against mandates, against what's being um, used and exploited by these uh, sort of centralized power mongers. You know, to to really take advantage of a situation um, to Im- impose power, and I think it's it's something to absolutely think about locally how that functions because House Bill 702 seems to give um, some protection to to private interests, even to to you know actually work within a more sane like structure. But no, they're 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 moving forward. And one of the things I want to mention really quickly also um, is conflict of interest it starts undermining your credibility. If you don't give a shit about the perception of conflict of interest, you know, people like Grace Decker, school board member, um, and also works at United Way, also creates political Facebook groups and is quoted in the Missoulian, you know, about directing political activity with those Facebook groups. That's a conflict of interest. They don't care. It was reported, um, I think Zero Hedge is where I saw it, but Merrick Garland, okay, Merrick Garland is being called out now for conflict of interest. Um, because of his, let me just bring up that. Did, did you see that? I want to mention that. Just kind of get it on the record because it just pisses me. Well, most off. of what I'm seeing from the the federal government now seems to be whatever NGOs on the left are telling them. I mean, this whole thing about calling domestic school boards terrorists originating at a memo from the National School Board Association sent to why, why the fuck does the Justice Department look to the National School Board organization to determine if you're a terrorist? That's just weird. The the thing I want to say about community is uh. Mm-hmm. 
why go after the nurses and doctors? These are the people that run your business. This is the reason you even have the doors open. If you want to go after Gianforte or Biden or, or someone in the courts, or you want to go after the administrator of a rule, do it. But maybe they love the National Guard so much they want to see him back, like in the hospitals. Making, I'm at the point where lunch. my main doctor is is community, and I don't want to go back there because I just I, I don't feel. I mean, half the time, the doctor I talk to is just tells me everything I'm saying is crazy. He's like, that's normal. Don't worry about that. I just don't well, here's some, here's, here's some Fox News for, for being crazy. Um, I just wanted to read this really quickly. Um, uh, a legal firm has filed an official request with the Office of Government Ethics to investigate a possible conflict of interest between Attorney General Merrick Garland and his son-in-law's business that promotes critical race theory in classrooms. Quote, today, America First Legal filed a request for investigation with the government, with the Office of Government Ethics regarding, you know, just restates it. Um, uh, America First Legal said in a statement outlining Garland's son-in-law, Alexander Tanner's involvement with uh, Panorama Education Incorporated. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, Attorney General Garland's son-in-law is Alexander Tanner. Mr. Tanner is a corporate official of Panorama Education Incorporated. The statement adds, Panorama's website assures school boards it may purchase racial and gender indoctrination, data mining, and other services using parents' tax dollars. Publicly available corporate data shows investors, including tech billionaire oligarchs, have invested over $90 million in Panorama. Panorama's business, its investors, and Mr. Tanner are likely to be adversely affected if parents protest and stop school boards from funding racial and gender indoctrination, i.e. equity programs aimed at K through 12 public school students. Well, and and also kudos to Roy because I think he was highlighting some of the teachers in Montana who went on their social media and said, "I'm going to teach your kids about race theory whether you like it or not. I'm, you know, what happens in my classroom." I just want to mention that if you do want to go to the protests, it looks like they do have uh, Missoula, Billings, Bozeman, Great Falls, and Hamilton all have protests scheduled for 2 o'clock on Sunday, November 28th. Here in Missoula, that's going to be on Reserve Street. Outside uh, Lowe's, right? Or yeah, up, up by England and Reserve. Uh, in, in Hamilton, it's down by uh, Safeway, which is I right should, I should wear my Propaganda Report t-shirt. Um, Monica sent me one. It, it doesn't conform to my usually all-black uh, attire, but I should I should wear it anyways because... <laughs> Monica and Brad kick ass, and people should check out the propaganda report. It's really good. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I I think we had a good discussion today because Me too. the issue with the drugs and the homelessness is here. Is I'm being well informed by this book. I think I would recommend it very highly to anyone. Yeah. I think it's a really good summary. Of Michael Schellenberger, San Francisco. Yep, yep. Um, he really directly contrasts San Francisco with other cities who also have major homeless problems, like New York City, Los Angeles. Um, and what has worked. He also contrasts it with the European model and why theirs works so well and ours yeah. works like dog shit. So. Absolutely. Um, I, so, yeah, I think it's been informative, um, maybe a little bit less ranty, but, of course, people don't want to listen to podcasts unless there's a little bit of, like, stuff going on. But low energy at first. I'm, I'm glad we were able to continue having a good conversation and discussion. And I'm going to be a little bit, I think, need to be a little bit less uh, reactive on the trigger when it comes to hitting publish I shouldn't say these these semi-inflammatory words because you never know what can be sound bit out. But um, it's definitely worth thinking about what's happening in your own backyard, in your own community. Um, tomorrow I have an opportunity. If, if it goes forward, I have an opportunity to be a guest on something. Um, fingers crossed. It's been rescheduled a few times. I'm excited. I think there's some interesting, positive things happening in this town. I'm meeting people. I am encouraged on a daily basis, even when I sound like I might be kind of tired 
or a little depressed and sad because it is now November and gray and cold. And this is Missoula, Montana. Um, and this is Zoom Cron, yeah. a podcast that we've been doing and we're going to continue doing because I like talking to you, Tim Adams. Thank you for coming a day early, even though this will be on a Tuesday. It'll oh, be aired. But okay. Hopefully no crazy stuff happens that we should know about if someone. I'll give you me. all my passwords. Keys to the kingdom, brother. Oh, don't do that. Actually, I'll tell you about some ideas I have after sell it after some of your enemies. Totally. <laughs> okay, well, tune in next week. We will have something up. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Try to spend yeah. it with family. And don't listen to all those CNN articles saying you have to shit on your relatives because they don't agree with you on politics. Show some restraint. Put on some big boy and big girl pants and don't be a dick. I'm yeah. going to try and, and follow that advice myself. As we have noticed, we know quite a number of liberals who have come quite to the right uh, over the past two years. So... Always be aware that people are watching and listening, and they'd much rather see you be a strong individual living through this than a bitchy, whiny person who wants a needle in your arm. So, Amen. On that, until next time.